the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. God has called us to do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what he tells us to do. Welcome to Core Truth Radio, a radio ministry of Core Church Los Angeles with Pastor Steve Wilburn. Pastor Steve will be teaching the Word of God with truth right from the Bible. For more information, go to corechurchla.org. That's corechurchla.org. Now here's Pastor Steve with today's Core Truth. And pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would cause our hearts to burn on the inside, Lord. And that, Father, as we start this study today, as we do this intro study, and as we move into studying this for the rest of the year, Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will speak in and through us, that we would grow, not only as individuals, but as the body of Christ here in this great city. So, Lord, speak to us now, for we ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Here's our intro into the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 1. I entitled this message, Why the Gospel of John? I mean, why this book? You know, why is a question that we often ask. In fact, why, according to the dictionary, means to question, to reason, you know, the cause or the purpose of things, of just about everything. Why? You know, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we go where we go? All the way to, why was I born in the first place? Yes, we ask the question why, and we ask it often, especially when we don't understand what's happening around us. Like, why is there so much violence in the world today? Why is there so much unrest? Why are people losing hope like never before in history? Why do so many hardships and difficulties keep happening to seemingly good people? But you might also be ready for a life in general to treat you a little nicer than what it's been treating you. Yes, in life, we will always have a multitude of whys. If you don't believe me, you can just refer to Murphy's Law. And that's the law that simply states this, whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And for those of you that are not real familiar with Murphy's Law, let me remind you of some of the rules that govern Murphy's Law. Here are the top five according to the internet. Okay, number one, everything takes longer than you think. And if the directions say even a five-year-old can do it, look out. It's going to be harder than you think. Number two of Murphy's Law, if something simply cannot go wrong, It's going to go wrong anyway, okay? Number three, the other line always moves faster than your line. Oh, I'm the guy that falls for that one every time. Look at that line. It's going faster, and I'll move over there, and I'll get right up to the checkout thing. One person in front of me, price check. Oh, I'm there forever. Then, of course, number four is Murphy's golden rule. And what is that? 
Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Yeah, some things never change. And last but not least, on the top five lists of Murphy's Law is smile because tomorrow will be worse than today. (laughs) Hey, don't hate me. I'm just reading off the list. But anyway, the one thing that every Christian, though, in the midst of Murphy's Law must embrace is this. It will be heaven in heaven. And on earth, there will always be something difficult happening in our lives. There will always be something that breaks. There will always be someone who gets sick. There will always be an unexpected hardship that you were not planning on. But we as Christians, we must know and embrace and hold on to this. That 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is he that is within us than he that is in this world. So in the midst of things falling apart, in the midst of things breaking down, greater is he that is in me than anything that can come against me in this world. Likewise, Jesus is quoted as saying this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then, of course, we also have that verse in Philippians, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So no matter what happens, I can do all things. These are incredible promises given to those who have embraced Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Yes, as Christians, we are the children of God. We are the children of the creator of all things. And God has promised to each of us that he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. Even in the midst of horrendous hardships, in the midst of horrible trials, he's not going to leave us. We're told in Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That word refuge in the New American Standard Bible that I read out of is translated trust in the King James Bible. But in the original Hebrew language, it actually means both. That God is a refuge, that he is a place that we can flee for protection, but also he is a place that we can put our trust and our hope in. Yes, there will always be wise when we think about the things that are happening around us. And there'll be wise that we'll never have answers for. But in the end, for the true believer, we will all stand in the presence of God. We will have a new body in heaven and we are going to live forever. And that's a long time. And that's why it's so important for us in this life to have a biblical worldview not a secular worldview. We need a worldview that is built on the biblical truths that God has given us in his word. One that is not swayed by ever-changing winds of feelings and emotions. One that is not drawn here and there by the ever-changing winds of public opinion, or as we call it today, the progressive movement. And it's bad enough that we have this progressive movement in our country that is moving us so far to a place like, why are we going where we're going? But now there's a progressive movement in the church itself where young Christians are calling themselves progressive Christians. They say things like, well, you know what? It's not up to me to bring my truth to somebody else. No, I've accepted the truth of God and I've given my life to Jesus, but it's not up to me to push that on anyone else's truth because whatever your truth is, 
is your truth. This just happens to be my truth. What a bunch of hogwash. Why don't you go in a corner and suck your thumb? Because that is not what God has called us to do. God has called us to do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what he tells us to do. We are called to be lights that shine in this dark world. How are the people walking in darkness? How are the people blinded by sin ever going to see the light if we're not shining it in their lives? Yes, God has called us to make a move. We are not to be, quote, progressive Christians. And by the way, that just progressive means it's defined as those who just want change. See, they are opposed to things staying the same. Now, being progressive in cars is good because I'm a car guy. So when the new model comes out and it's got more horsepower, but yet it's more fuel efficient, that's a good thing. So I'm in the progressive cars. That's right. I want them to get better. I want them to change all of these things. But when it comes to the preciousness of the word of God, the word of God never changes. Why does the word of God never change? Because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Understand, man will fail, but the Bible will never fail because the Bible is reliable. It is totally trustworthy. But yes, governments will fail. They fail all the time. Theories will fail. Opinions will fail, but God's word will never fail. Remember, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, It's not new. That's right. Bible theology must be kept above all else. When everything else fails, we never change the word of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture, not a portion of scripture, not just a part that you agree with, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired literally means it's God breathed. So all the prophets of the Old Testament, 32 writers of the 39 books of the Old Testament, God breathed his word upon them. So yes, it was a man. He was recording what God wanted to have recorded, but it was breathed on him by the Holy Spirit. The 27 books of the New Testament written by eight different authors. It was inspired. It was God breathed on them. And he goes on to say, yes, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God will be adequately equipped for every good work. Yes, the word of God, it says it's profitable It's profitable for teaching. Why? Why is it profitable for teaching? Because it's doctrine. What is doctrine? It is truth that God has given to us. It's truth that's been taught to us by God himself. It brings reproof. How? By telling us what is right. It brings correction. How? By telling us what we need to do to get right. And it trains us in righteousness. How? By telling us how to stay right. This is why we have to make sure that our definitions of the word are biblical, that they're not borrowed from the world. Men and women who've embraced Jesus as their Savior and Lord, which would be most of you and me, myself, God has called us true believers, not fake believers, 
He has called true believers to do what? We are called to be the guardians of his word. We are the light for this generation. This is why it's vitally important that we adhere to these unmovable truths that we have been entrusted to. For we, again, are the caretakers. We are the stewards that will be held responsible for this generation and this culture that we live in. That's why we've been ordained to live in this generation. You could have been born in any time. You're an individual. God knew you from the beginning of the creation. He knew you back then. He could have said, Dad, you're going to be born a thousand years ago. You're going to be born 500 years ago. You're 150 years ago. You're on a dairy farm. That's your life for the rest of your life. You're milking cows. That's it. But, but God has allowed you here in this great city, second largest city in America, number one city that sets culture in a known world. Don't think that you're not a guardian of the truth in this dark place that we live in. Yes, God has called us. Now today, we will embark on an exciting new study through the Gospel of John. We will consider three points in light of our title. Our title is, Why the Gospel of John? Number one, well, who is John? Well, he's one of the disciples. Well, let's find out a little bit more about him. Number two, who is Jesus Because he comes out of the gate blazing like a flame of fire about who Jesus is. And number three, why he came. Why Jesus came. Well, let's look at our first point. Who is John? Obviously, he's the author of this book. Now, John recorded five of the 27 New Testament books. So five of them are written by the Apostle John. He wrote this, the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These are epistles that are closer to the book of Revelation. They're towards the end. And then, of course, he did write the book of Revelation that we just got done studying verse by verse. Now, as you know, there are four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the Gospel of John is very different than the other Gospels. Matthew's gospel, he portrays the Lord Jesus as the son of David, heir to Israel's throne, the king of the Jews. Mark's gospel brings out his servanthood as the perfect workman and servant of God. Luke portrays our Lord as the perfect man, contrasting him from sinful man since Jesus was sinless. Yet John takes a very unique and literally profound look at who Jesus really is. John was able to grasp the true concept of how God chose to reveal himself to this creation. John was also known as the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. He and his brother were nicknamed the sons of thunder for He was full of zeal and passion. But in some cases, it was almost like he had a little too much zeal. Like the time that the Samaritans refused Jesus to come through their land and to stay with them. Now, as you know, the Samaritans were a people that were rejected by the Jews. Now, who were they? The Samaritans were Jews, but yet they had intermarried with non-Jews. So they were considered as half-breeds sellouts, you could say, for tainting their own bloodline. So when they turned Jesus away, it was James and John that both said, oh Lord, should we call fire down from heaven and roast these people? (laughs) That's when Jesus rebuked 
both the sons of thunder, both James and John. Why would he rebuke them? Because Jesus did not come into the world to save, you know, to roast people, but he came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Yes, you know, there was an early zeal. There was an early passion that these both brothers had, James and John. And though it was overzealous at times, God was able to harness that zeal and he was able to move it. He was able to move it into a place where it was productive. And it was productive in his life. I wonder if you have a zeal in your heart, in your life. Maybe it's a little, you know, cluttered with other things right now. Maybe God wants to take some of those things and those strengths that you have in your life and he wants to use them for his glory. Maybe you have certain talents and certain gifts in your life. And you might think, well, yes, I'm just a smart person and I can make all this money and I'm doing all this stuff. Do you think that you just had that on your own? Were you in your mother's womb deciding how smart you were going to be? Were you in your mother's womb giving you the giftings that you have today? Every gift that we have, it's because God has given it to us. And God wants to use those gifts for his glory. Yes, you can make money with them and you can be very successful in this world. But he also wants to use those gifts for his glory. You know, we were teasing Alex here earlier as his 50th birthday. He's not here now, but he's the one that set up our projectors here. He's the one that set up these screens. He's the one that got us on the internet. He's the one that got us live doing our, you know, all our services online. He's the one that set all that stuff up. You know, he worked at Sony Studios. He was a, you know, kind of worked his way up there and, and he had all of this talent and he brought it to the church so that we could expand our footprint here in Los Angeles. I wonder what gifts and talents you have that could actually benefit our church. What gifts and talents do you have that could make this a better place? Well, see, God wants to use those gifts and talents. But anyway, getting back here, you know, he recorded this book some 50 years after he had walked with Jesus, after he had witnessed the life of Jesus personally. Listen to what John said in his first epistle. Now, this is towards the end, but in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. What was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, what we have heard, What we have seen with our own eyes, what we beheld with our hands and we handled him concerning the word of life and the life was manifested, talking about Jesus. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you also. He's like, wow, you know, that's, he knew, he knew exactly what he was trying to do when he wrote this gospel. The gospel of John was written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, meaning that when John was writing this book, he was writing really to third generation Christians. They were a desperate generation. Now, why were they desperate? Because they were in the desperate need of a revival, just like we need here in Los Angeles. See, in 1948, Billy Graham came here and kicked off his ministry. Right there south of downtown on the other side, on the south side of the 10 freeway, they set up a giant tent. It was called the Canvas Cathedral. And he was supposed to speak for like three weeks on this big, you know, revival meeting. He ended up speaking for like seven weeks. He spoke some 70 messages. Thousands of people in Los Angeles gave their life to Christ. It was amazing what was happening. 
So all of this stuff was happening, and it's just like, why? Because God was causing a revival in this city. But what's happened now? We're onto the third generation of people from 1948. And what's happened with those people? They've lost the fire. See, the first generation of people, when they witness something firsthand, it's like, it's exciting to them. And that's what happened to the first generation of believers in Jesus. They witnessed the truth of the Lord. And they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They saw the miracles. They witnessed the unbelievable unfold right in front of themselves. And because of that, they embrace Jesus as the truth with great heartfelt conviction inside. So much so that those first believers were willing to die for their faith. Well, the second generation of Christians, well, they were convicted by the passion of the first, but it was not as zealous as the first. The edge of their conviction had been diminished some, but the third generation and all the way to us living here today, it's different. It's the conviction, it's a conviction that has been lost and it becomes nothing more than an opinion. It comes nothing more for some as just a religious duty. Oh, well, we go to church. Why? Well, because we've always gone to church. That's what we do on Sunday. We go to church. We carry the book. We sing the songs. But where's the passion? Where's the conviction? And some are quick to trade their opinions for a new movement. How come the church isn't more on fire? Well, let's get some movement going. Let's start doing things that we have to change and we'll open our doors and we'll lessen the law of God. We'll listen, lessen the conviction of God. We won't teach the whole thing. We'll only teach the fun stuff. We'll only teach the bouquets of flowers, but we won't teach the hard things. And so they start changing things for a new movement, a new movement. And they feel it's time to do that as they look at the world for new ideas. Well, what does the world do? We need to do the things that the world does to be cool. But again, there are no new ideas when it comes to our soul. There's no new ideas. Oh, sure, I don't mind doing LED screens and those things are fun, but those are window dressings. You can never let newness change the teaching of the word of God. It was Bible expositor Warren Wiersbe that said this quote, the world changes, circumstances change, we change but God's word never changes. Yes, styles change, technology changes, all these things, but the heart of man never, ever changes. Yes, John was full of zeal. He was full of passion from a young age, and he never lost it. Maybe that's why Jesus seemed to draw so close to him. For out of his 12 disciples, there was actually three disciples that he kind of brought into the inner circle, you could say, you know, and they experienced three unique special moments that are recorded in the scripture that the other nine disciples didn't get to partake of. The three were Peter, James, and John. They were the only ones present on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we know it as. That's where Jesus gave his glory a little bit of ability to shine out. And the Bible tells us that his face was shining like the sun itself and his clothes lit up like an LED light bulb. 
Yes, they witnessed the true glory of Jesus here on earth where no one else saw it. It was only Peter, James, and John. In fact, Jesus said, don't tell anyone of this until after I'm gone. But they got to see his true glory come out just for a moment. And it wasn't just them he saw when they woke up because they fell asleep and took a nap. When they woke up, it was also Moses and Elijah talking to them. And that's when Peter said, hey, we're going to build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's when a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's a nice way of saying, shh, time to listen, not talk. But it's like, notice, just a little side note here. People will say, pastor, you think when we get to heaven, we'll recognize our past loved ones? Well, do you think you're going to be more stupid in heaven than you are here? I mean, of course we're going to recognize them. I mean, how in the world did Peter know that that was Moses and Elijah? It's not like they were alive when, you know, when Peter was there. It's like, oh my goodness, did they have name badges on? You know, it's like, I'm Moses, you know, I'm Elijah. It's on the back of my jacket. Hoo-hoo, you know, it's like, no, it's like he just knew. And we will know that in heaven. Thanks for joining us for Core Truth Radio. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn of Core Church Los Angeles. If you'd like to hear more messages by Pastor Steve, download the Core Church Los Angeles free app available on iOS and Android. Core Truth is sponsored by and a listener-supported outreach of Core Church LA. If you've been blessed by this program, consider supporting our radio ministry by texting Core Church LA to 77977. You can also give via our app or online at corechurchla.org, as well as writing to P.O. Box 34789, Los Angeles, California, 90034. 